colonial pipe. Some people look at them and, you know, what did they do right? What did they, they do wrong? I think it's really good. No one was harmed that I know of, but people really got to experience what it means to even be not perfect at cybersecurity. Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast, where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wisseman, Head of Security Strategist, I'm Rob Borrego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. So Stan, who do we have joining us today? Rob, our guest today is Brett Thorson. Brett is a principal at Platinian's Cybersecurity Chapter with over 25 years of experience in cybersecurity and information technology, including his work with the federal intelligence community and large global commercial firms. Brett, can you expand on, our, on your background for our audience? Sure, absolutely. And if you haven't heard Platinian, it's because it's a, it's a small part of Boston Consulting Group. Uh, they added on a bunch of little specific things to do, you know, big data processing and engineering, and we're the cybersecurity part of it. Gotcha. Uh, my, my background, uh, I've been here for about four years. It's the best job I've ever had uh, working with the A-team every day. I absolutely love it. Before that, I was at a startup on the West Coast for end user behavioral analytics. And before that, I spent 12 years at the CIA doing all sorts of CIA things. And then just a smattering of jobs, I, I worked for the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, for a while and some local governments, some state governments, um, just doing all sorts of technology and usually cybersecurity stuff. Pretty broad background. Um, so thanks for being with us today. You know, for years, cybersecurity experts and intelligence officials have, have warned us about the high stake threats associated with cyber attacks on our critical infrastructure. Um, but it wasn't until this ransomware attack against Colonial Pipeline that, you know, U.S. citizens really felt it. I mean, they were really concerned about being able to get gas into their cars. What are your thoughts on the attack and, and its impact? It's really interesting how everyone reacted. And, you know, when you think about it, it really could have been a lot worse. So this was fuel for cars. And luckily, it disrupted the supply chain a little bit, but let's think if it was our water system, right? Or sewage system. I mean, things that could really cause a risk to life uh, right off the bat. But, you know, Colonial Pipe, it's, it's mostly over with, you know, there's still a lot of trucks zooming back and forth as fast as possible on the East Coast. But some people look at them and, you know, what did they do right? What did they, they do wrong? Um, a lot of fingers pointed at them right now. And then the, the presidential um, executive order came out as well. And that just happened to be good or bad timing, depending upon how you uh, see those types of things. So I think it's really good that no one was harmed that I know of, but people really got to experience what it means to even be not perfect at cybersecurity. I think that's interesting, you know, to kind of look at that safety aspect of it, right? Because mm -hmm. when you start considering, you know, not just this pipeline issue that got all this media attention, but what about what happens, as you said, critical infrastructure, water and other resources. And it kind of hits this personal spot to people. And I, I find it interesting. I was talking to a colleague when this came out in security and they're like, all of a sudden my friends and family are like, what's going on? What's this all about? Well, 
this is what I've been telling you all along the way, that these are the type of issues that can happen, right? So when you look at that, um, and you also kind of look at this, this media spotlight that was put on it, right? Mm-hmm. Whether positive information, negative information, even sometimes not the right information. Um, you know, what's your take on how these type of incidents truly actually shift to make a change, right? You mentioned the executive order that's come out. Okay, great. But reality is when you talk to different organizations out there, is it just kind of what was the latest in the news and they're reacting to that? Or is the reality as, okay, we, we truly have to look at this holistically as to the program we're going to put in place effectively and not just kind of a single point of response. Yeah. I think it did a lot because it, since it brought it to everyone's attention, you can now relate it to different things. So let's take home security. Like you drive into your neighborhood or your apartment building and maybe you have a fence around it, right? You can look and visually see, is that fence intact? Or you can see, is there a stranger standing on the corner with a clipboard, you know, taking notes and stuff. And so even in the operational technology or even in the utility sector, there are people who are very security conscious. I mean, there are people working on the line. There are people, you know, driving up to the buildings. So everyone from HR all the way to, you know, I turn a valve. All those people are trained from day one. You work in critical infrastructure. You have to keep your eyes and ears open. And it's really easy to do that in a physical sense. So if someone can get to a pump and throw sand in the bearings and destroy it, people will say, well, let's build a fence around that pump. The, the corollary to cybersecurity is when you drive up to the building, you have no idea if the firewall has been accidentally configured to cross two VLANs and completely bypass it. There's, there's no way of knowing that. And that's why you need constant testing. That's why you need to have the neighborhood watch, if you will. But that comes at a cost. You can't just ask everyone, hey, please be safe at the plant or on the site or at the location. You need to have a specialized company come in with specialized skills and tools and poke holes and try to test everything. And in operational technology, everyone has always said, you know, we don't trust these white hat hackers. They're going to come in. They're going to touch something. They're going to accidentally tip it over. And my response to that has always been, it, well, A, you should have a plan in place. And that's a, that's a whole discussion we can have as well. But B, it's better to know that it could happen within a specific window than letting the hacker, the black hat hackers run wild and you don't know when it's going to happen or if it could happen. I think it's all about risk management. And if you don't have, as you point out, that visibility into what your security posture is or where your weaknesses are, whether it be on the IT or the OT side, and you don't have that ability to understand where those vulnerabilities, you can't manage that risk. Mm -hmm. And so when you're dealing with your customers and trying to raise their awareness about these issues and helping them understand that, you know, given the, 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 the threat landscape we're in today, it doesn't matter who you are. They will take advantage of your weaknesses Mm -hmm. and you've got to manage that risk. So how do you help them Uh, understand what it means to anticipate these kind of attacks, to withstand the attacks, to be able to detect them quickly and reduce that dwell time. What what do you do to help them get that risk management perspective for the cyber side of the house uh, and get that awareness? Yeah, so it's it's literally the the, my favorite part of my job. And to me, it's not even work. And I get to run the cybersecurity tabletop exercises for all of BCG. And I absolutely love it. Uh, 
they point me and a team at an organization and just say, how do you destroy this organization? And then what can you, what would you have done to prevent you from destroying this organization? And we've done financial, we've done oil and gas, we've done uh, the insurance industry, who is ahead of the curve, because as you said, Stan, they're risk averse, they're, they're looking to manage risk. But those tabletop exercises, there's different sizes and kinds for everyone. So we start at the board and we give them a tabletop exercise that ensures they know what the organization is doing, because the board isn't going to be, you know, tactically responsible for a response, right? But they're responsible for making sure the organization has the right tools, techniques, procedures, operations, the the plan to do it. So ultimately, that accountability rests on them. But then we take it one step lower. So then we go to the C-suite. And here, we usually leave out the CEO and we say, you know, hey, we put them on a what I call the Fiji vacation uh, because I want the decisions made, you know, one level lower rather than one person or everyone looking to one person. And we'll see if they know the operational uh, pieces of it. How can you make decisions with imperfect or uh, incomplete data? Or do you have a escalation path? Do you know who your cyber insurance is? There's a lot of questions at that level. And then we take it one level deeper and we go to maybe the tactical managers. So the people who are managing IT, the people who are managing security, the people who are managing comms and legal. And then we take it one step even further. And that's where we start testing the SOC and the C-certs. And we have partners that we work with to actually do, hey, do these people know what the response is? And, And sometimes we do live fire injects within their organization at the same time. And those are four different groups. And depending upon their maturity, we usually start with each one individually. But after a while, we do one big one where everyone is communicating all up and down the chain because communication, that is one of the the most difficult things to get right. In, In the context of critical infrastructure, would it be done any differently for, again, the OT side of the house? It really isn't. Um, The only thing that is different is I've seen bigger stovepipes between uh, the OT and the IT side. Uh, Same as like a hospital, like the people who manage the switches in the offices are going to be different than the people who manage the IT healthcare infrastructure. So you usually have to deal with them separately or differently. But at the same time, you got to make sure that these people are talking back and forth to each other. For OT, you just you have to be really sensitive to the sensitivities of the organization and you know you don't want to cause loss of life you don't want to cause injury harm etc and maybe just a little bit of internal embarrassment if you will like we like to say we go in there and we cause just enough chaos to make people sweat but not enough to throw their hands up and say well this is impossible because there will always be a better hack or a better attack or a better vulnerability or something you're getting the, the adrenaline flowing a little bit, yep. but you're, where you're not causing the panic. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And, and it's different for different companies. There was one TTX I was developing and I said, well, you know, we just uh, stole $25 million and it was an insurance, a large insurance company. And they said, well, that's the amount of claims we pay in a day. We're a multi-billion dollar company. I'm like, well, I got I to gotta change the way that I'm doing this. And for them, it was all about trust. It was all about, can this organization be trusted with data, with operations, et cetera? And when I disrupted that, 
that's when the CFO came along and said, hey, this guy just shut us down, just completely wiped us off. We have to invest in cybersecurity. So it's all about finding the holes. And I'm doing that looking at business continuity, incident response, disaster recovery plans. And then in the CERT SOC version of the TTX, they're doing that. Our partners are doing that by literally poking the holes and saying, look, you have a PHP externally facing machine that hasn't been patched in six years and I can see everything from it. A true vulnerability. Yeah. I think one of the things that you call out here with the tabletop exercise is interesting how you kind of alluded to the you know, insurance vertical, if you will, being more you know, associated understanding because that's the type of business they're in, right? Risk kind of management aspect. And we've had some conversations about tabletop exercise in the past. And two of the key elements, as you alluded to also, is you know, the collaboration right? And the communication aspects and what they uh, allow you to learn, allow you to also make decisions that if this thing really happens, this type of example happens, guys, just move forward and, and take the actions. Don't wait to get a hold of, you know, XYZ people to get the approval process, right? So that, that, that helps really mitigate those type of situations uh, and better kind of, you know, encapsulate them at times. I wanted to kind of double click down a little bit on the specifics of ransomware, Brett. And Obviously, you know, just every single time, that's kind of the key theme. It's, it's ransomware. It's ransomware. And what kind of guidance, what are the conversations you're having in the preparation? You kind of alluded to that already, but on the preparation, but also clients' recommendations as to what to do when they're in those particular given situations. Yeah. I, I'm going to combine the two things that you said about making decisions. Uh, we've actually found with ransomware, everybody thinks they can make that decision. So when we do cert SOC, TTXs, someone's like, you know what, we need to pay this ransom. So let's go ahead and do that. Mm. And then, you know, I, I hate to tell them, but I usually craft the scenario in a way to be like, well, that's actually got to go up to the CEO. So we'll take that with a, you know, thanks for your input. Um, but everyone along that chain seems to think that they can make that call, which I always thought was interesting. Uh, as far as paying it, that is a really tough uh, answer. And the only way that I've been able to answer it is you will know, should you have to pay it? And let, let me put it this way. I hate to disparage anyone who has paid them, but if you look at it and say, hey, the ransom is going to be $2 million, you should be able to make a calculation that says either I am so far behind in my disaster recovery business continuity plans that it will take me $4.5 million to recover. So $2 million is actually a savings. If you've done that calculation, good for you. And that's pretty cool. Hopefully the next one you're going to do is I need to get that number down. Um, in some cases, people will say, look, I'm, I'm just not going to pay it because even if it is two and a half million dollars, I will happily pay $10 million not to fund this. And you get, you get some really good experience out of it. Maersk was, was one that I thought, you know, they got hit and they handled it really well. They had fleets of people reformatting computers. They contacted all of their clients and customers. They kept them abreast of what was happening. Um, and they rebuilt their stuff from scratch without paying the ransomware. It was probably more expensive than paying the ransomware. Uh, I don't know that for a fact, but what they had to do. Um, but they learned a lot from it and they learned in what that issue. So when that ransomware pops up, and it will pop up like there's no way to 100% guarantee that someone isn't going to land on your network. That's just impossible to do. Hopefully, you will have 
you know, segregated that computer or segmented your network so it doesn't spread. And you can make a quick decision and say, well, it's on five computers. It's going to cost me $100,000 of people process and technology to replace that. And the ransomware is $2 million, So no, I'm not going to pay. Hopefully it's a very throwaway decision for you. I think one of the challenges in some of these scenarios that we're seeing play out, like the Washington Metro Police Department is currently being hit by an attack. And they're, they're not only locked up as far as the data being encrypted, but they've also um, are leaking some of the, the police files and records on some of the staff as a way of, of enticing the Washington Metro Police to pay the ransom. And so that's the other concern is not only can I operate you know, and get my data back in, reformat, and get all the computers working again. Um, but is there a risk of exposure of data you don't want to have released? So I have to, they have to balance in that. And, and, and then the colonial place, going back to paying the ransom, I mean, they, it looks like they paid like $4.4 million or so. That's what they reportedly um, paid um, Darkside. Do you think that sets a unfortunate precedent I mean, again, the size of the ransom paid as well as just the fact that they they did it. So we might think of it as all of these ransomware operators are are operating in a stovepipe. And when one sees 4.4 million paid or whatever paid, they're like, oh, okay, that's the new number. These organizations, these criminal organizations, they're doing their background checks. Uh, Companies who issue cyber insurance is a leading target right now of hackers because they want to get in and figure out how much cyber insurance organizations have so they know what the right number is. Again, they're trying to find expensive enough to make it a payday, but not too expensive that someone's like, no, I can recover for half that amount. So not only are these ransomware groups somewhat bragging and talking about the values behind the scenes, because there's a lot of ransomware that gets paid that never makes the headlines. Um, you know, they're also doing their background investigations to figure out, you know, what that right price is. Brett, one of the things you you also mentioned as we were discussing this topic, um, specific to the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, is the action that we saw come out of the federal government with President Biden moving forward with the executive order. And I, I need to ask the question of, you know, it's kind of the tipping point where this now has we've seen so many different things happening and now here's this particular example that's finally kind of put it over the top. But what do you see as far as that balance between private and public sector reality, right? Because we've had many conversations with private sector and they just feel, listen, it's, it's really upon us, right? We ultimately own the responsibility it kind of goes back to the risk relative to the organization that they're a part of, which we get, but what influences do you see potentially coming out of the, federal sector to better drive potentially the private side or, or not, but what's your, what's your aspect and kind of thought process on that? Uh, yeah. It, you know, I, I thought the executive order was, I, I read through it, but honestly, I am, I am not a, you know, C subsection F part two kind of guy. I'm more of a, you know, show me the, the standards and I'll show you where the protocol breaks down and I can, you know, find a way to weasel in. Um, I thought it really, it's good. It's good because it increases information sharing. And that is 
really what we need. If you look at someone who's done it really well, China, for instance, their information sharing between private or commercial entities and the government is really well, and their security shows it. Uh, the America, on the other hand, you know, even while I was working at the agency, we would see things that we really couldn't tell anyone else about because the way that we discovered it was it, it had to be classified, right? And so, you know, it kind of broke our hearts sometime, but there was a greater good involved. I'm hoping that with some of this new action, there will be a increased ability to, from government, pass down to private organizations, just say, you know, tap them on the shoulder. Hey, a little bird said this. You should really check it out. I know the FBI has been doing a lot. I get their, uh, out of the New York office, they issue these briefs and stuff, and they're actually really good. Uh, and it just kind of lets you know, like, hey, if the FBI is putting this out in public, chances are there's there's something really beefy behind it, and it, it's time to take action. Now, even within the organizations within the government, the information sharing is, is pretty tough. Um, I've had the opportunity to work inside some DOD uh, complexes and just talking with the mission operators there about, hey, if, if we do detect a threat, we have to touch 25 different systems to, to collect all that information. You know, even in the commercial areas, you know, everyone has a SIM system, but even so, you still have to touch a bunch of different things to maybe collect it all in one place. In the DOD, it's even worse because you're, you're crossing missions, you're crossing buildings, you're crossing geographies, and the hackers don't care. They're just pivoting around wherever they can. I'm hoping that it makes it easy for the, the threat hunters and the incident responders to have all of that data in one place. Agreed. I, I think, Brett, that one of the things that we're, we're seeing out there is, um, it's been going on for years, right? That, that whole collaboration, again, goes back to the information sharing, right? And this kind of keep it close to the vest but I'd like to hear everything else you have to tell me. And it's like, well, come on, it's a two-way street. And the reality is we yeah. only get better if we actually do communicate. And then that partnership, and I do call it a partnership with the FBI, right? Working actually ahead of time, building those relationships, knowing who to call when actually something's happening. And it's not the first time you're speaking to them at that point in time, right? When you're scuffling and trying to figure out just what happened. So Brett, great insight. Really appreciate you taking the time today to, to take us through this and your background and experiences that you have in engaging with your clients and similar types of situations that unfortunately will happen. But again, the guidance is always of value. So thank you for the time today, Brett. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe. This podcast was brought to you by CyberRes, a micro-focused line of business, where our mission is to deliver cyber resilience by engaging people, process, and technology to protect, detect, and evolve.